It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but on social media, there has been a trend buzzing around where people are posting pictures from 10 years ago and themselves today. Have anybody seen that? Yeah, right, okay. And um, some of them are so cute. There's like a, like a picture of a college girl, and then next to it is this like glowing mom with two kids, right? Or there's this like obnoxious skater boy, and then picture next to it, he's now like an insurance salesman with a tie, right? And it's so cute, and it's so cute. Others are kind of shocking, like, wow, life really punched you in the face. I am so sorry, so sorry about that, right? And then Tommy was like, wow, I can't believe you're gonna say that. Uh, it's true though. And then, of course, there are those souls that, you know, 10 years later, nary a wrinkle or a pound gained, right? And you're like, what is this? What is this witchcraft? What is this that you were doing, right? Now, this is a little fun fact. 10 years ago, almost to the day, was Tommy and I's very first Sunday as pastors. Can you believe that? A decade. That's crazy, right? I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So exciting. So exciting. 10 years ago. We were such little babies. Can't believe they hired us. Wow. But uh, this time... Uh, in January, 16 years ago, if you can think back that far, right? Some of you can't because you were literally not born, but that's all right. Um, I was a senior in high school, and yes, I was. Heard <laughs> <laughs> about that? Just told me to shut up. All right. Well, I see how it is. 2003, senior in high school. I had just embarked on this grand adventure with my parents and my little brother. I only had one brother at the time. And uh, we had gone to Dakar, Senegal. It is the country on the westernmost tip of Africa. We had gone there with a work and witness team to help construct a facility for a growing Nazarene church. And it had been a really wonderful experience to serve alongside our African brothers and sisters and to learn about the history of that place. And there are a thousand stories I could tell you about that, okay? But after two weeks there, I was kind of ready to get home, right? I was ready to get back to my senior year because I had some significant goals I was working toward and I needed to get back to do the hustle, because that's the kind of girl I am, right? So we packed our things, and we bid our new friends farewell. We boarded the plane, ready to get home. Now, just so you know, if you spend two weeks in Africa, your body's going to let you know that you've been in Africa for two weeks, okay? So we get on the plane, and all of us, every single one of us, is sick to some degree. It's just a matter of degree, our illness, okay, right? So we get on the plane. My brother and I, he's 14, I'm 18. We're the youngest on the crew, and so we were obviously suffering the least at this point. But traveling approximately a gazillion miles in an airplane while you are ill is not my idea of a good time, right? And so the whole flight, um, I've been kind of trying to doze off, trying to sleep through it, da, 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 and I'm just thinking about all I've experienced and how, you know, all the things I've learned and the perspective I've gained and whatever else, but mostly I'm thinking of home, right? I thought of my bedroom, one that I had all to myself instead of sharing with six other women who were 40 years my senior, right? That was such a blessing. And then I had really enjoyed trying all these new foods, but honestly, all I wanted in the world was some cereal with some American milk, okay? And that, we're dear guys aren't even here because they have that crap in the box. It's on the shelf and it's warm and you pour it out. And you're like, no, where is my American milk? It's cold. And it's fresh and it can go bad if you don't drink it. And I just wanted some milk, right? So we get home, we get to, we lay, um, we're in the airplane, we get all the way back. I have all these things. I'm so excited to get home and we pull, we fly actually into New York City. And we get there and we hustle as fast as we can to the terminal 
And lo and behold, even though we hustled, we missed our connecting flight. So one more night away from home, but at least we're in the States, right? So the airline put us in this hotel and I was comforted by the fact that at least I'd get some rest before going all the way home. And maybe the hotel breakfast bar would have cereal with milk, right? And I'd be, it'd be great. So I go and I fall asleep and in my bed and in the middle of the night, I wake up and I hear this like, this whooshing of water. And at this point I was slightly delirious because I was so ill. And I'm like, oh weird, I'm having dreams. They're actually coming true. Is this Jumanji, right? And I open my eyes and water is pouring out of the ceiling onto my bed. Okay, and so like the hotel guy comes and kind of carries us off to the go to the new room. And at this point, I don't even know if this is really happening or if I'm dreaming. And so I go to this new hotel room and I fall asleep. And I don't I don't know if I slept or not, but I was talking in my sleep in multiple languages and water and everything. And it was so bad. Right. So the next morning, I'm like, okay, I made it through the night. We make it to the airport and we get there only to be greeted by the grumpiest most unpleasant airline employee ever to walk the earth. And so after, only after this extended time, this tense conversation of if you're in the right spot, we are finally released to board the plane for Kansas City. You see, I had so deeply longed for home. I didn't feel good. I just wanted to be home. And my longing made the disruption of the missed flights and the flooded hotel rooms and the stomach ailments and the mean airline employee and the nightmares all the more difficult to bear. My expectations of home were shaken and disrupted the homecoming that I had imagined in my head. Now, we're going to return to the book of Isaiah today. We're going to be actually in chapter 62, but we are going to encounter some of these same themes of homecoming, of expectation, and even of disappointment. Now, last week, we heard the word of the Lord from Isaiah 43. The people were in exile, and they're far from home on account of their persistent rebellion and disobedience, their lack of righteousness and justice. But God breaks into their despair, and he says with the mighty, but now... I banish your fear and I invite Israel. He invites Israel to this God-initiated, God-sustained newness. And so too, we are invited to release the old, the hurts, the sin, the regret, the fear, and ask, are we willing to give up the old to make room for the new? Now, if you'll notice, all of our old is gone this morning. It's been completely purged. Mary Kondo, Marie Kondo came here this weekend, did a little tidying up herself got rid of all the junk that represents all those things that we cling to in those dusty boxes, right? We let the light of Christ blaze into them and and what do we find? We ask, are we willing to release all of this stuff to his lordship in response to God's presence, God's pursuit of us and God's invitation to come home? And so this light that is not on currently because it was hurting your eyes is shining into these empty boxes, symbolizing our release of the old to make space for the new. Now, in today's text, in chapter 62, the people of God have finally returned home after exile, okay? The light of God has shone into their lives, calling them to repentance and obedience, and they've responded to that call finally. And so with joy, they begin this journey home from Babylon, where they've been residing in exile. Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a minute. Imagine the people of God, and they are on the church bus. How many of you have gone to camp on the church bus, right? 
How many of you gone to retreat? Yes, on a church bus. Yes. And how many of you survived actually going on a because they can be crazy, right? Church buses, right? Now, so they have this cool, like, people of God logo on the side of their bus. And they are just hightailing it from Babylon all the way back to Israel. Imagine that. Imagine that, all right? And the old timers there in the back, they're the only ones who actually remember home. And so they gather the young ones back to the back of the bus. And they're telling them the stories, right? They say, guys, if you could have seen it, the temple, it was so beautiful. Guys, if you could have heard it as we would walk to uh, we would walk to Jerusalem, we would sing the songs of ascent, all of our voices together. Oh, it was so beautiful. And we'd walk into the city and there would be the marketplace. And you'd smell the spices and the bread and see the fruit and the vegetables. And oh, it was so beautiful. And over all of those smells, you would smell the cooking meat from the sacrifices of the temple. And you knew the priests were in there offering sacrifices on your behalf. It was so beautiful. And then sometimes once a year, we would, we would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and we would all camp out. It was like the coolest thing ever. And all the young Israelites were like, ooh, camping, right? And we would eat smoky food over a fire as we remembered our people's journey through the wilderness. It was, it was so wonderful. And so as they're telling these stories of what once was, it's nourishing their souls, their tired and weary souls. And they look out the window of that church bus and they wonder, why is it stopping here in the middle of this field, this barren wasteland? Is it a potty break? But no, the door opens and they emerge from the dusty bus, eyes wide, mouths agape, and what they see is rubble. Torn down walls, a burned out ransacked ta- temple, a few scattered shacks, the dwelling places of those that were left behind, those the people of Babylon didn't even want, the old, the sick, and the lame. And in my mind, a tumbleweed blows by, right? This is newness. This is God's glorious promise of restoration. We left Babylon. We repented of our sins. We emptied our boxes in the shining light of God and his revelation. And this is where we end up? You see, we all respond to disappointment and dashed expectations differently, don't we? There's the cynics among us who usually expect everything to go badly, and so they're really not quite as devastated, right? But then there's people like me who is such an optimist, and I can really be brought low by this kind of thing. Like, oh, really? And then there are those people, bless their hearts, that they walk into any situation and it could be just flames. And they're like, this is okay. We can make this work. I can see, yeah, the temple. I see it right over there. I hate those people. (laughs) Just a little bit because I need a minute. I need a minute to go full on, woe is me. This is not what the catalog promised. (laughs) See, we've released the old. The boxes are empty and we are ready for newness. We are ready for God to move and to heal and restore and forgive and reconcile and all those things. And yet there's this rubble, this mess. Newness seems to have missed its flight and left us waiting. And so for the people of God, returning to this mess, there has to have been a sense of despair of disappointment, maybe even anger. God, we responded to you. We returned to you in our hearts. We cleared out space for whatever new thing you wanted to do. And yet the temple isn't instantly restored. The land is still burnt out and barren and the walls are piles of rubble. And so it is to these confused, frustrated, disappointed people longing for newness that the prophet once again speak. Isaiah 62. 
starting in verse 1. This is the prophet speaking. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. Now this prophet is bold, speaking on behalf of these people. They're awaiting newness, awaiting the promises of God to finally come to fruition. And he says, I will not keep silent. I will not rest. He sounds kind of bossy, not going to lie, right? Like a man on a mission consumed with his task at hand of reminding God of his promises, reminding the people of their identity and their role to play in redemption. Now, the prophet is doing for the people of God what some people call holding space. You know what I'm talking about? Holding space, being present and attentive to the people's needs exactly where they are, not necessarily trying to fix it or judge them in the midst of their long-suffering endurance. Now, the concept of holding space is constantly used, very frequently used, in the process of death and also the process of grief but also the process of giving birth. Now, a midwife or a doula or a husband comes alongside the mother in labor and allows her to experience and process what's happening within her, guarding her from irritation and from negativity and harm while she attends to the task of bringing forth life, right? Now, when I was in labor with Jojo, Tommy quickly learned what it meant to hold that space for me. Yes, it meant supporting me and encouraging me, but it also meant dragging the negative midwife out into the hallway because she had been belittling me. And so he in turn berated her and told her to do her job better, right? (laughs) That is part of holding space, is going into action on behalf of the other, right? And it may seem like a shocking parallel at first. This prophet that dares to remind God of his promise This prophet that dares to refuse to be silent or rest until God keeps his promise. This prophet, his heart longs for God's people to experience salvation after years of rejection and pain. And he longs for their shame to be replaced by glory. He longs for them to receive a new name, to be declared the delight of the Lord for them to experience the intimacy with their creator God once again. And so the prophet speaks these words aloud, holding space for the people of God in their disappointment, reminding God of his promises, but also reminding the people of some things too. He says, people of God, do you remember you were once lost in utter darkness, but now, The light of God has burst upon you and it will lead you to salvation and righteousness. The light of God will illuminate you, but not just you, the whole world. 
the nations, everyone around you will see what God has done, will bear witness to the newness that he has wrought within you. Your hurt and your sin and your rebellion in the hands of a good God will be transformed into a beacon of redemption for all. Remember, people of God, how you stood by as the city burned with ash and tear-streaked faces looking at all that had been lost. Now, people of God, remember... No longer are you burnt out, disheveled, damaged by sin. You are called the crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. You are a treasure. Remember, people of God, you who were only once known as forsaken. Remember that precious land that God promised you? Everybody called it desolate. You had nothing. You were nothing, but no longer. God has given you a new name. Now your name will be delight, for God delights in you. And the land that was once so desolate will now be called Mary because it will be fruitful and verdant and a part of a covenant with God, a promise. So as the prophet is, yes, he's calling out to God to remind God, he's also reminding God's people, reminding them of where they've been and where God has promised to bring them. And most of all, he's reminding them of their identity and their vocation, their identity as the beloved of God and their vocation as being light reflections in the world. Now, the prophet, he draws heavily on this whole marriage metaphor, likening God to this adoring husband, and they are this beautiful wife, and he even talks about their name being changed. Now, name changes are a really big deal in Scripture, and I'm sure you know a lot of those stories. Not so much in our culture. I went through this phase, I think it was like 11. I was 11 years old, and I felt like my name, Stephanie, was just way too 80s. (laughs) Because, let's be clear, uh, it is. (laughs) It's like the hyper 80s name, right? Right up there with, like, Tiffany. And um, I was so set. I had my heart set on switching my name. I was going to go by Rachel. That's my middle name. I was like, I'm going to be Rachel. Isn't that so much better? It's just so beautiful. All these things. And at the time, we were about to move from Wichita, Kansas to Junction City, Kansas. And my dad said, hey, sure, go ahead. If you that's what you want to do, now is literally the time to do it. Okay? Go ahead. Go by Rachel. I don't care. Whatever. And I'm pretty sure he only gave me permission to do that because he knew that I would lose my nerve, which I absolutely did. I did not change my name to Rachel. I am still 80s Stephanie. Thank you very much. Now, years later, when Tommy and I got married, I had to go through the process, as always, you know, of changing my name. And it can be really overwhelming because you have to fill out all these, like, paperwork, all these documents and stuff. But I didn't resent it at all because all of that work and all of that paperwork of changing my name was symbolic of my greatest joy, right? Of this new expanded identity. I was now Stephanie Rachel Dernis Lobdell. And changing my name when we got married was about covenant and identity. It was a name change that mattered. Now, there are lots of name changes in Scripture, but some that are more famous than others. You know the story of Abram and Sarai, how they were just these two barren older folks that were kind of sojourners through the land. And God said to them, no longer are you Abram and Sarai, which meant high father and princess, but now you are going to be called Abraham and Sarah which means the father of many nations and mother of the multitude. It was this reflection of this covenant between God's promise to them, but also their promise to respond to God, to obey and to bless the nations through their faithfulness, right? So it was this reflection, this name change of their identity and 
their vocation. They were no longer this barren, childless couple. They were now the father and mother of a nation, even though they would not see it come in its fullness, right? Their vocation had been transformed from just being these mere wanderers who were just trying to make a name for themselves and achieve wealth. Now they were the caretakers of God's promise. And just two generations later, Jacob, remember Jacob? He was kind of a kind of a jerk, honestly. He would always trick people and get his way. That's why he was Jacob the deceiver. And at one point he has this encounter with God and he's wrestling with this divine being and he throws him to the ground and it's, it's quite an ordeal. And he says, no longer are you Jacob the deceiver. Now you will be called Israel, the one who wrestles with God. You will leave off deceiving. You will leave off this self-serving way. Now you too will be a man after God. You too will be caretakers of God's promise. Not only focusing on your own prosperity, but on focusing on God's mission of redemption through your family. And so, too, the people of God to go through this, this symbolic name change. They were once forsaken and desolate and scorned, but now they are called delight and married in covenant. And they are called back to this vocation of service to God to shine God's light for the world to see. Because their old name tells them who they were, right? Where they had been and what they'd been about, but their new names tell them, who they were being invited to be, to become. Now, I know that some of you are awaiting newness. I know some of you feel like maybe you just got off the church bus, hoping, maybe even desperately scanning the horizon for any sign of newness. I know some of you have paid your last penny from your bank account of hope to be here today, to show up, in expectation of God's promise, because it can be so slow, so slow in coming. And we plant the seed of our obedience, sometimes at great cost. And we find ourselves itching to dig it back up, like, oh, is there any roots yet? Maybe a little sprout for any indication of newness. And so today, beloved, would you allow me to hold space for you for just one moment, for you who wait, for you who have turned from the old and you are leaning towards the new, but you don't see it yet, for you who have begun to doubt and to fear and to wonder, will God keep his promise of newness? Will God keep covenant with me? As I say yes, to his newness and no to what once was, will God show up and redeem and save and restore? And so as a midwife holds space for a laboring mother struggling to bring forth new life, I hold space for you in this moment. As you struggle to trust God's work in you, God's purifying redeeming, sanctifying work. I hold this space and I say, do not fear. Your salvation will come. I hold this space and I say, even on the darkest of mornings, when it feels like the darkness is clinging to the cover of night and you can only see this tiniest speck of pink in the distance, the light will come. Your salvation like a burning torch. 
and it will come. And I want you to hear this. The light will come and it won't just be for you. Because as the light of God comes to us, and as we let that light in healing and forgiving us, restoring us and, and right-wising us, orienting us rightly to God, the world bears witness. And not just the world like some big metaphor world that we don't, doesn't mean anything. I mean your kids will bear witness. Your spouse will bear witness. Your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers will bear witness as your patient obedience illuminates the space around you, drawing hearts and eyes to Jesus. You, who may have once been ash-streaked and tear-stained, feeling worthless because of your sin or because of the brokenness that has done so much damage in and around you, in the hands of God, you are being transformed, both now and in eternity, into a thing of beauty. And you, too, have a new name given to you in baptism. When you went down into those waters, that old self, the self defined by ego and by selfishness and fear and self-preservation and anger and bitterness, that old self was buried like Jesus in the tomb. And when you were raised up out of that water with your hair dripping and your eyes streaming and your clothes heavy with the weight of the sacrament, you were raised to new life. Eugene Peterson says in Romans chapter 6, and you've heard me read this a thousand times, and I don't even care because I want it to sink into your bones. He says in Romans 6, When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind, and when we came up out of the water, we entered into this new country of grace, a new life and a new land. That is what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. And when we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each one of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in this new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this, if we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, Think of it as this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on his every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That is what Jesus did. Now, because of your baptism, you, your first name is Christian. Before you are anything else, you are Christian. You are not your best deed. You are not your worst. You are not the worst thing that has happened to you. You are not your greatest failure. You are not your greatest triumph. You are not first American. 
You are not first female or male or any other identifier. You are not your job, and you are not the stuff that you have acquired. First, you are Christian. Beloved child of God, co-heir with Christ, invited forward into resurrection life. And like those people of God in Isaiah, you too have been given a new name, a new identity, a primary identity that supersedes all the others. Every single thing that we do and we say and we believe and affirm must pass through that identity first. Because this new identity comes with a new vocation our true vocation, to be reflectors of that God light in the world. As the prophet declared that the people of God, that they would shine forth like the dawn, like a burning torch for the nation, so too we, as we trust God's refining and transforming work in us, as we remember who we are, we too reflect God's healing light in the world. Yes, I know, I know all too well that we do not yet see that newness in its fullness, do we? Like Abraham, we see the promise at a distance and we greet it in hope, in hope that it will come. And like Abraham, we trust that God is working newness in us and through us and will continue the work. And so our challenge today is simple. It's to remember Remember what God has promised. Remember newness will come at just the right time. Remember God's invitation to us to continually shed the old and trust his way. Remember not to flee from the light even when it burns, but to allow yourself to be exposed that you might be healed. But most of all, remember who you are by the declaration of your baptism. A chosen child of God, co-heirs with Christ, set free from the chains of the past and invited forward into newness, a participate in God's illuminating work exactly where you are. And so I'm going to invite you today to do something a little different, an intentional remembrance of your baptism. Now, I was baptized when I was 12 years old, and I will tell you, I had no blessed clue of what God was doing in me. Some of you were baptized when you were babies or little as a declaration of God's preventative grace in your life. And guess what? You didn't have a clue either. (laughs) And even if you were baptized as an adult, can any of us truly understand the grace that comes to us through the waters of baptism? No, we cannot. But guess what? God did. God does. And so today, I want to invite us who have received the sacrament of baptism to come forward today and remember Remember and trust, remember and hope, remember and take courage. Tommy and uh, Pastor Debbie will come and um, you guys will come forward just like you do for communion. Just come forward to receive uh, receive communion. And they will simply take their thumb in the water and they're going to put a cross on your forehead. It's not magical. This is water I got out of the sink in the kitchen. Okay? It is not made holy by us. It is made holy by the presence of God. And today I want you to remember This is not a re-baptism. This is not a baptism. This is a reminder of who you are in Christ. And as they make that cross on your forehead, they will remind you, remember your baptism and be thankful. It's not magical. It's not a re-baptism. It's a reminder of who you are, 
of whose you are, of your new name and of your vocation to be light reflecting in the world. And if you haven't been baptized yet, I would invite you to come talk to us. I'll baptize you next week. You don't have to wait till Easter. God's calling you. You should say yes. So I'm going to invite you to stand today. We're going to sing a song that reminds us of God's power to redeem. And if you would like to remember your baptism today, of God's promise that he is and will continue to make all things new, both in you and through you, for your sake and the sake of the world, come forward um, and remember. Let us pray. God, we thank you today that you have spoken over us a new name, that we are Christian, shaped into the image of your son and continually shaped into that image until the end of time. And Lord, we are awaiting your newness. And sometimes we kind of wish you'd pick up the pace. But Lord, we do trust you. Even though it's costly, we trust you. And we cling with a white-knuckled grip to your promise. We claim our new name, and we rest there. And we keep saying yes to you, yes to you, planting the seed of our obedience in full faith that it will bring forth a harvest. Even though the newness sometimes seems far off on the horizon, like Abraham, we greet the promise, even from a distance, and await as you do your work in and through us. May the light that shines in us not only be for us, but may those around us bear witness to your illuminating work for your glory and for the salvation of the world. Oh, we love you. And we trust you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen. Would you receive the benediction today? Beloved Christian Christ Church, may you go from this place reminded of who you are, children of God, beloved, and called forward into newness. May you trust with everything you have. And when you run out, let us trust for you and with you. Trust what God is doing in you. And now go forth and may the light that is shining in you illuminate your world. Go in action and go in peace.